Over the years on this podcast, eight to be exact, one of our favorite guests has been OMN's national editor, Art Levine. He's a journalist with international cred. His book, Mental Health Incorporated, is a very serious work. He's been an editor at the Washington Monthly and has written very funny pieces for National Lampoon, among many others. We always have fun when he's on this podcast. We're going to talk about the best interviews we've ever done, including James Brown, Ruth Brown, Leon Redbone, Hank Ballard, Storm Large, and many others. It's always fun to talk to Art. We've been friends for 50 years. That's scary. Well, it's Art Levine and I again. Once again, so how many times has this been uh, on the podcast, Art? Do you know? Four? Four or five. Or five, yes. Could be. Could be. And uh, and we always seem to have fun, which is also a good thing. Uh, and even 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 in the middle of, of hot, smoky summer. Oh, you don't get smoke there, do you? Uh, no, but we could eventually. That's, everybody could eventually. Right. <laughs> But we've gotten smoke now almost every summer. Uh, wow. How about that? I got to beat you on that one. <laughs> we, we have smoke to, to help uh, help uh, kill us uh, and ruin our lungs. <laughs> oh, boy. So anyway, um, since uh, I only have two more weeks before I go back into, uh, uh, back, take myself back into Artichoke and start uh, doing the one-on-ones live again. Not live, but at least I'm talk, sit across, sitting across from the person I'm talking to, uh, and that'll be with Reggie Houston. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I thought oh, great. Uh, I, I've been I've been uh, getting people in here to uh, uh, people I, I particularly enjoy doing this with, and we've had good results in the past. So I'm not taking any chances here. <laughs> Can't gar- no guarantees. Oh no, oh, no, no. You, you wouldn't do that to me, would you? <laughs> So I thought, um, since since you are the national editor of of Oregon Music News, right, and also that you've, but between the two of us, we probably interviewed two or three thousand people. Don't you think? Uh, probably. Yeah. I think you. I. That's a really great question. I know on on like one book project, it would be a few hundred. You know, so over sure. over a, over a forty year career, I'm sure it's a, it could thousands. be a few thousands. Yeah, yeah I hadn't thought okay. of it that way. So, hey, before we – and we're going to talk about some of our favorite interviews, and that should be a lot of fun. But uh, did did you – did anybody teach you how to interview? Did you have instruction on how to interview people? Did you no. get that in J school? In journalism school, they didn't really teach us much of value. In fact, I wrote a um, – I wrote a I wrote a humor piece of the Washington Monthly attacking the total uselessness of my J school with only <laughs> one or two uh, – uh, uh, insights that I gleaned from my parents probably having spent like ten or $15,000 for a year was if you look like a bum, you get treated like a bum. There you go. That was by a, <laughs> a, 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 a professor named Melcher. And then another one that was either from a professor or uh, possibly Gay Talese when he made an appearance there was – it's always better to go meet the person, meet meet in person, and whatever you can, better than phone interviews. Right. And that, and, that, and but in general, it was a complete waste of my time. I didn't <laughs> grow as a writer, and um, and no, so I had to pick it up myself. And um, uh, since I tend to interrupt friends, they go, "Do you do this with your interview subjects?" Is there <laughs> a, a secret complaint? And I go. 
a little bit. A you little know? bit. I think I asked you one time, Art, do you always uh, give your your subject several potential answers? Uh, no, I, I, I don't actually do that. The guy who was the, to me was one of the worst interviewers, although he was celebrated before a sex scandal was Charlie Rose. Oh yeah. Charlie Rose was incredibly long winded. And once he met his match with Ted Koppel, <laughs> so he, he said, it was so great. He goes, uh, he goes, uh, well, Ted, uh, did you move out of, uh, ABC regular broadcasting because you wanted to move on to new pastures or you think you needed more depth <laughs> or was it that you wanted to have a new opportunity to have something that'd be your own branded production company? And Koppel's answer was yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That, that's why I thought Bob Costas to me is the best broadcast interviewer. Yeah, he's good. He lets people talk. Right. And I think Stern is pretty good. Because yeah. he gets really good stuff out of people. You have problems letting people talk your, if they're your friends. Yes, that yes. has been a subject of complaint. Yes. So as I told <laughs> you, I'm going to experiment talking with my friend. Turns out the Alexa app on my Kindle uh -huh. shuts off my microphone when the other person is talking. Ah, so <laughs> that's terrible. Right, but that means... They're, on their end, if they don't like my being, interrupting them, then they won't get interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I never went to broadcasting school, but I did teach in a broadcasting school. Wow. And I found that the one thing they never taught anybody, and it's essential for broadcasting, is they never taught you what you do to get, when you get fired. And wow. I, had, I had a whole, you know, a uh, couple of uh, whole classes um, in a couple of weeks worth of classes on what you do when you get fired. Wow. You will get fired. It is, yeah, it is, particularly in radio. Yeah. But anything. Right. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, unless you're like, a, a you know, a, a one of those local TV people who stay in the same place, place for, you know, for their whole life. And those people are, are they're, they're fewer and fewer of those. Right. Uh, although there still are some. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the people get people always get fired. You know, so what do you do? Right, right. <laughs> That's the thing is they're, they're the same people are there uh, for like 30 years. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so what I thought we'd do was talk about some of our favorite interviews. Okay. You know, would you like to start? No, I'd rather you would because. Okay, uh, <laughs> I will. And and I've told this story in other, other places, but I don't mind telling it because it's really good. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> I was working for a TV, a TV show in Baltimore, Maryland called Evening Magazine. Other places it was called PM Magazine. And I was a, I was a, uh, a, a story producer. I wasn't, I wasn't talent. I was story producer. And, but I, I heard that James Brown was coming to Baltimore. Now, he owned, or he used to own at that point, I forget whether he still owned them, a radio station, a motel, and a beauty shop. <laughs> and so, but he was coming to town because... He owed people a lot of money, a lot of money, and he was going to be he was going to be in court. So I went to the courtroom. Wow! And I walk in, and he was on the stand testifying. And when I say testifying, I mean testifying, <laughs> and uh, you know, like a preacher. And and he and he was talking, and they're they're trying to get money out of him and stuff. And he just he, he turned to the judge and said, Judge. If I was Chrysler Corporation, you wouldn't be doing this to me. And of course, that was at the time when, 
when Chrysler was getting bailed out by the government. Right. Uh, and if I was Chrysler Corporation, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be doing this to me. And of course, he was right. So after it was over, I said, uh, would, can, can, I, can I get you to sit for an interview, a TV interview this after, uh, to, uh, a little bit later in the evening? He said, yeah, sure. I was shocked. I was shocked. And so I had to wait several hours with like chewing off my fingernails, thinking I'm going to I'm going to interview James Brown, for God's sakes. What? So anyway, right. so, you know, so it, I'm sitting there with him and, you know, we're talking a little bit. And I said, uh, Mr. Brown, of course, I, I had to call him Mr. Brown because he's James Brown, for fuck's sake. And, uh, and I said, uh, uh, wh- what is it that you have that makes people go nuts? And he said, well, you know, I don't know what it is, but I, I hope it never goes away. And I said, well, well, what do you do? And he goes, and I've repeated this line so many times, and it's so amazing and true. He said, I just kick off on the one and let the boogie do the rest. Wow. <laughs> now, I didn't know what on the one meant at that time. You know, of course, it's a it's a thing. It's a thing in soul music. Uh, and uh, <laughs> And so I just, well... Wow, I, mean, I didn't have to really say very much else after that. It was this amazing line, and this, this James Brown said it, you know, and it was it was his secret. Because and it, the, the later on, uh, you know, I, I read a bunch of stuff, and it's still because uh, that was just before that was just around the time that he was he he was doing funk rather than soul, you know. Right. And of course, the, there you know, there's various stories about the, did he get it from. Bootsy or Bootsy's brother, when they when 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 the Cincinnati guys joined the band after Macy and the other guys left before they came back. So anyway, uh, that was uh, that's that's one of my favorite interviews of all time, James Brown. Well, I want to tell you about one of my interviews, but I want to add about my experience seeing James Brown live at the Apollo Theater. Oh boy! In the, yeah, so this would have been about nineteen. This is going back. It would have been about nineteen sixty eight or sixty nine. Um, that's that's uh, funk right and Mm -hmm. so the concept is I think there had already been riots in Harlem and we went up there and I went a friend of mine who was an older guy we had graduated high school but I don't think I'd gone yet to to college or it might have been back on a break I I forget and we we went there and we were one of um, now this has some racial issues but I was there and we were we were in line, and one thing – I mean, this is very t- – it's still racially tense, you know. Sure. Air, time, and so we were we – were When one is of it maybe, not, Art? When is it not? But <laughs> we were in line, and one thing I did is every single person who was like come up to me and, hey, man, you want to buy a Muhammad Speaks? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I was – any – And do you come, have a bean pie also? Right. I would basically buy anything that anybody was like offering, you know, and if someone's wanted to bum a cigarette, say, I don't smoke, but what else can I, you know, the concept. So I'm in line, we're waiting in line. And when, but as it turns out, there's about maybe 10 white people in the audience. And I uh, had never, and then James Brown comes on and does such an amazing show that, but he's also using strobe lights. And I had never and the crowd was going crazy and true to James Brown form. He might have been he might have, you know, come back after the finale of the great Cape Act where he leaps back. And Mm -hmm. then he may have I think he finished up literally threw the mic down and walked off 
in the middle of the greatest hysteria you could ever see. <laughs> and that was like James Brown live at the Apollo. I'd, so yeah. I ended up yeah. – how many times did you get to see James Brown live perform yourself? I think just once. I think I would go see him like four times, and I always felt, yeah. even as he got older, because he was always great. So yeah. in uh, for my interview, I've interviewed a lot of musicians – uh, no, I've interviewed some musicians, and a story of mine that was one of the few stories that uh, got appropriate play and got support from my editors was when I, when uh, back uh, several years ago in the in the late '90s, uh, uh, the the Rhythm and Blues Foundation was started in part with a lawyer named Howard Wilson and the backing of Bonnie Raitt, and it was to help. Recoup. This is after uh, the Big Chill came out, and all these artists who were getting their songs played on radio, and 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 you know the kind of revival of interest in soul music and Motown. Mm -hmm. They were they had been totally robbed in their royalties, and so right. this foundation arranged to get the recoup of it. And so one of the interviews I got to do was with the great Ruth Brown, who you know, and also to sure. uh, obviously people know she was known uh, for some of her hits, uh, you know, you know, some of her big hits, but also she was playing uh, made, Mama, Mama you, you treat your daughter mean. Big one. Yeah. Mama treat your daughter mean. And she's also in a John Waters film, right, you know, right. And she was really good. So here's the thing is she was in the original hairspray. Yes. And yeah. she's a, an amazing person. And so what happened is, I go to meet her. This says a lot about racial issues. I go to meet her where she's in rehearsal for Black and Blue on Broadway. Mm -hmm. But she's in her – so she's in her late – like she's in her, her 50s, let's say, and she's really dressed down in kind of very informal clothing. So she kind of looks like a washerwoman, right? Oh, boy. She's very dressed down. And I go to meet her at her rehearsal hall. And then we go down. We come down town to do an interview at one, the hotel i guess where i was staying and we were going to have a big long interview but it was closed oh. for lunch oh, now geez. here's the key thing it was closed for lunch and her first reaction was oh they're being racist and they're not letting me eat there so oh, this boy. is in the 90s and i was trying to reassure no that's you know they're just closed they're getting ready for the lunch crowd because it was in between she said Oh, you know, when we said, look, uh, I was trying to argue with them to let us in. They wouldn't let us in. And so she was uh, she was, you know, convinced it was due to the racism. And I said, OK, let's do this. Let's go across the street to the Waldorf Astoria. Oh, boy. We walked across the street. This is on U.S. News credit card. And I <laughs> sat down for a two and a half hour interview. Wow. With. Or about two hours with my recorder running with the great Ruth Brown, and it was like a hundred and thirty dollar dinner, oh you know, yeah. lunch because it was like I would do anything to make her feel good and great. Yeah. And, and that was what thirty years ago, right? Yeah. So that so it was an, so what happened is I learned all these amazing stories from her, and it's uh -huh. and it's. Much of that, I, I will see if how I could even they're they're they mishandled their uh, archive so badly it may not even be available if you pay for it. Oh, but so she told me about uh, how she how she uh, had her comeback um, after you know she was known as 
uh, Miss Rhythm, and also they called Atlantic the house that Ruth built. In a in mm-hmm. a kind of pay into you know Yankee Stadium, Yankee Stadium yes. and Babe Ruth. So she told a story that is. Uh, let me tell two stories from there that are kind of remarkable. Um, so one, well, she told a number that are remarkable, and her book is fantastic called Miss Rhythm. And uh, the thing about her, or has a title similar to that, is when I read about it and read in her book all the unbelievable racist abuse that she dealt with her entire life, but to particularly when she was in the South in the pre-1950s, you know, pre-civil mm-hmm. rights era, mm-hmm. they would, when they would be touring, she, they'd be stopped by state troopers who would pull them out of the bus and try to make them dance at gunpoint, or she'd Jesus. be pulled out of restrooms. It was just, it was total. So when I read that, I read that after my interview with her. I read, oh, that she's willing to talk to any white person is a great act of generosity on her part. Yeah, really. And so one of the things that stuck in my mind is that she was scheduled for her first recording session in New York, and she got in a really serious car accident, and her legs were damaged, and she was in the hospital, and Atlantic waited for her and paid for her hospital bills before she had her first recording session. Wow. And they waited a few months, and they came in, and then she had all these hits. <clears throat> but the other thing is she was working as a cleaning lady in Long Island. Oh, the, the worst moment in her life was when she was working – she was working uh, – you know – uh, come back. She was working as a cleaning lady, and then she tried to get on the Long Island Railroad when she <laughs> learned that her mother was in the hospital. And then uh-huh. by the time, but she it was slow getting down the steps, so she missed the train, and her mother died, and she felt so awful. Okay. But then she was also working as a cleaning lady in Long Island. The radio was on, and she somehow heard a story that they were doing uh, some kind of musical where they were kind of looking for someone who was a Ruth Brown type. <laughs> she's a cleaning lady. Jeez. And she's like, she hears about the Ruth Brown type and she ends up getting in touch with them being cast and like comes down this spiral staircase, all has everything together, blows people away and she's back. Wow. It's just, it was so such an amazing story, and I felt so honored to be to to be a vessel to tell her story. It was great. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, you know, um, I, I have one that's uh, just a one just a one liner, and then I'll, I'll go into another one. Um, uh, people around these in these parts, and, and actually all over the, the the world now, know who Storm Large is. Uh, right. She was on America's Got Talent, and but she's she's been here in Portland. Actually, she she just moved out of Portland, as far as I know. But uh, she's she was she's beloved in Portland, and I did a, an interview with her years ago, like fifteen years ago. It was the first time anybody had done anything on her, and uh, and uh, we we're talking about what she likes to do to the audience, how they how, how she wants the audience to relate to to react to her, and she says <clears throat> she said I want to grab them. And shake them like they're a uterus and orgasm. Right. Wow. <laughs> it's a great line. And the thing was, uh, you know, uh, years later when I interviewed her again, I hadn't, I hadn't talked to her for a long time, uh, I brought that line up and she, she remembered it exactly. She knew. <laughs> so anyway, but the other than that, the, 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 my next one is Reverend James Cleveland. 
the oh. famous gospel uh, sure. choir director and singer and composer and all that. I was working in Los Angeles at a, a, a TV show called uh, 28 Tonight, and um, they had brought me out there from Baltimore. Uh, and and by the way, uh, the old saw that uh, uh, don't don't ever go on vacation. Uh, that's what happened to the guy that I replaced. <laughs> They brought, wow. me out there. they brought me out there to, to work uh, during his vacation, and he never got back. Anyway, so I, and I knew that, the, that James Cleveland was there, you know, and, and had a church in, in L.A., and I, and I went to the boss, who was an African-American woman, and said, uh, how about we do a, a you know, a, and I was doing half-hour documentaries every week, every week. And I said, what, what, how about we do James, James Cleveland's church? And she said, that's a great idea. Uh, you know he's gay, right? <laughs> I where, said, were you ba- where were you based? Los Angeles. Point? Oh, you were in L.A.? At the yeah, time. that's what okay. I said. Yeah. Um, and so I said, okay, well, how, would you, how do you suggest we handle that? <laughs> and she said, well, don't bring it up until the very end. <laughs> so we go shoot in the church. And it was obvious what was going on because because the choir director had a, who was who was black had a blonde page boy haircut, right? And okay, fine, good. Uh, so it was it was it was a magnificent uh, musical performance, and it was I'll never forget it. So we shot that, and then it was time to go to do the interview later in the week. And so we get there, and we are met at the door by a, an oiled manservant. Wow. <laughs> It sounds like it sounds like a you know it sounds like a, a sitcom or something, but it wasn't. It was real. So sounds it, like the elevator scene for the producers. Exactly. They go. Oh, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly that. Yes. Anyway, so you know, so we go in and I do the interview, and I, I'm waiting until the end, and, and I and I I, met, I thought long and hard about the the perfect way to ask the question, or at least to bring up the subject, right? And so I did the interviews out of the way, and I got one I got one more one more thing. And I go, Reverend Cleveland, I just uh, wanted to tell you how how, uh, how wonderful it is that uh, there's so many, uh, the diversity of the people that uh, that you have in the church. And he cut the interview off right there. Wow. No, we're not going any further. We're not, that's not a, that, I don't like that subject. And we just packed up and left. <laughs> I, got well, the, I, got, you... I, mean, I got I got the... Uh, the, the, you know, the well, I, I have a gospel-related story to that effect. So I had a story proposal. I never got to publish it, but one of the great music writers in the country is Anthony Halbutt, who's also a record producer and a songwriter, and he's a big fan of gospel, and he wrote what is still the definitive book about classic gospel called The Gospel Sound that I recommend. Mm-hmm. He invited me to go to his apartment to meet the Reverend Claude Jeter, who's the lead singer of the Swan Silvertones. And he had come down from Harlem. They're best known for their version of Mary, Don't You Weep. Of everything. (laughs) Yeah, but he is basically the influence on falsetto singing in R&B, including mm-hmm. Al Green, including Smokey. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. go to meet Reverend Claude Jeter, and I'm completely honored. And he tells me a story about going to Al Green's church. Uh. And he's going to Al Green's church in Memphis when, you know, for that period, Al is, you know, left, you know, the, you know, he goes back and forth. He left secular at that point, right. was full-time minister 
and he goes to the church and he's going to be the guest soloist. He does the guest soloist. Uh, and you know, he kills cause he's, you know, <laughs> Reverend Claude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so he then goes backstage and looks for Al Green so he can get his check and he's not there. Oh, and, and his speculation is, well, I guess he left because I beat his ass so bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> no, I got to tell you another story about Halbut, and that's from an interview with him. It's so it was music related, but it wasn't published. But mm -hmm. he's written subsequently on uh, on Aretha Franklin, and he's he's one of the most erudite guys I know. He's also in his book, Gospel Sound, and I think he himself is bisexual, he made a point of saying, uh, uh, essentially, the church became the home for a lot of gay men in, who would then serve as choir directors and other oh, yeah. musical roles. Yeah. It was yeah. really a, a, an essential sort of relatively safe space for them to In white to churches, operate. too. Yeah, it, uh, probably, but it was really big, and you know, really big, and where they, in theory, but he, he basically, um, he helped resurrect the career of Marion Williams. Huh. Um, and he was a, such a genius, Anthony, because he also wrote a book called Paradise, Exiles in Paradise, about German Jewish refugees in America, and he had to master the biography and work of, oh, uh, and Austria too. Albert Einstein, <laughs> Hannah Arendt, Thomas Mann, and Bertolt Brecht, among others. Damn. Know, research their biography, understand their work, tell their stories. I mean, in one book. And he's also producing gospel records. So he produced some gospel of. He got his own label uh, under Shanaki, and he produced some records, and he included Marion Williams. So Marion was kind of. Uh, on the kind of uh, her career had gone into a big ebb, but they cut her with amazing grace. Mm -hmm. And he learned that PBS was doing this story, this documentary on, on amazing grace, which is quite a good documentary. Mm -hmm. And they got her version on there and it brought her so much renewed attention within about two years. And I met her before this in about two years, she was honored at the Kennedy center for of the arts. I mean, it was one <laughs> wow. of the, it was one of the most amazing yeah. stories, yeah. you know? And, uh, I met her, I met her backstage and we, and, and Anthony, who's a, a secular atheist, bisexual Jew would write gospel songs. <laughs> so he got on his knees and sang a song to her backstage and went, she listens and he goes, it's about getting on over or something like that, you uh -huh. know. And he, he, she listens, and goes, "That's good, Tony. I like that." It became the title of her next album. That was the album that I think had "Amazing Grace" and preceded her getting the Kennedy Center honors. And I was there to watch the birth of it. I mean, wow. it's kind of, kind of amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. Huh. Well, one time I was doing a a uh, uh, a radio show for the American Radio Network. Which was a two-bit outfit, but it was it was it was national. <laughs> yeah, and, and I had um, Leon Redbone uh, as a, on the phone as a guest. Oh wow! And um, it started. I mean, I, I called him right, and um, and he it was a Philadelphia phone number, and because uh, that's where he lived. 
And so, uh, and, and so I, he's on the phone, and I say hello, and I said, everybody, uh, uh, I have on the phone from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, Leon Redmond. He goes, no, 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 I'm in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't. He was not in Paris. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and there was some weird thing about, he, I, he, would you hold on for a, little, for a minute, this is later on after we got started. I went to a commercial, and just before I went to the commercial, I said, Lord, listen, um, uh, I have to clean some fish. I'll be right back with you. <laughs> but during that interview, he said something, and I've quoted him. I, I've, never, I've never tried to say this was my line, because I wish it were. But we're talking about, you know, he's, you know how, he's, how Leon Redbone dresses. He's very right. fastidious. Right. And he said to me, and I, I took it to heart, he said, a man's not dressed unless he's got a nice hat. Ah, well, that's been a, a, a motto. You, you're the one who took me to that play, the Hattery in New Orleans. You know, Meyer the Hatter, yeah. Right, and I still, I still have some of those hats somewhere in my, you know, closet. I'm not as, I'm not as dapper on the hats. Now, did you ever figure out? Uh, I one of the points that was so amazing about Leon's career was that. When he became famous, nobody could quite figure out how old he actually was or what his ethnicity was. We knew he was white, but he there was something that was sort of murky. How old was he when he died, or how old was he when he became famous? It was so uh, weird. You know, I it was a mystery. Nobody it, it, really it, knew much. It was a mystery, uh, and I, I, I uh, but not, no, actually, all that stuff came out. Eventually, it finally came out. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, but he, he, he was he was like Turkish or something. Yeah, he, I guess he was right, 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 right. And um, so here's a. It, Wait a minute. Here uh, you go. Here you go. Okay. Born Dikron Gobalian. Oh. <laughs> Born in Cyprus of Armenian ancestry. Okay. Uh, and the interesting thing is, uh, you know. One of the people that, uh, that he did, uh, he, he did, nobody recorded, uh, nobody covered songs of, of um, oh, Emmett, Emmett of, Miller. Um, Emmett Miller. Right. Like he, he, he recorded more of Emmett Miller than anyone else in history, right? Wow. Yet is not mentioned in Nick Totch's book, Where Dead Voices Gather, which is about Emmett Miller. Right. There must have been some bad blood. Might have been a rivalry because yeah. it would have been alluded to. Because part of yeah. this, part well, part of it though is sort of like um, it, it kind of reminds me of this bizarre cartoon of uh, uh, who, who's the lead singer of Talking Heads? David Byrne. David Byrne and Paul Simon meeting in the jungles of Africa, going, <laughs> uh, Mr. Simon, I presume, and they were both like <laughs> trying to credit. I mean, in his writing his book, discovering, you know, African music and so on. And so in his book, Tashi was putting himself out there as the great rediscoverer of Emmett right. Miller, which Me he was. Well, and meanwhile, Redbone had done a, a six or eight Emmett Miller songs on his albums by then. Right, right, right. And, you know, it's like... Uh, um, uh, the, and the whole point of the book... Is is how American music, you know, was it touched so many other 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 parts of other cultures, and you would think that an Armenian Cypriot 
uh, you know, uh, singing Emmett Miller would be a whole part of that. But no. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, now they're both dead. It, what? Now they're both yeah. dead. Yeah, that's yeah, that's sorry, bad to hear. But yeah. uh, one of the things that that is surprising to me is prior to this discussion, in terms of, of the state of American music, I wanted to to uh, I. I checked out Beyonce's latest album briefly and mm -hmm. looked at live Lollapalooza and and I basically felt, you know, like like I'm I'm some you know, like my, my the way my par pa parents and older generations felt listening to rock and roll. Go, can't anybody here write a song? Right, I mean, yeah. the actual song structures were not there, but uh, which puts me into an older – I'm already in an older demographic, but it reinforces that. So there yeah, wasn't much yeah. actual song structure, and I wasn't – but it's all – a lot of it's influenced by you know hip-hop and electronica, which are not my two favorite genres. Right, but right. Um, Well, in terms of uh, a, one of the other music interviews that I had was very striking was with Sam Moore. Uh, oh, yeah. Isn't he a Trumper now? Uh, yeah, I think he became, yeah, but when I knew him, he, I interviewed him about, you know, they were rediscovered when the Blues Brothers mm -hmm. occurred and they were doing their mm -hmm. Sam and Dave songs. Yep. Sam and Dave had not spoken for a long time. Was and that they the kind second of, Dave by then or was that the, still the first Dave? It was the, it was a, it was a, it was the first. Okay. And, and this, this, well, there were you two know, of whenever. Them. Right, but when the Blues Brothers movie and the uh -huh. and the, so they were both drug addicts and having serious problems, <laughs> and they they managed to clean up enough to be able to appear as guests on SNL. Okay, they had a guest shot uh -huh. on SNL, kind of an homage, and then they expected the world to open up, and it didn't happen. No, and they then, didn't even have. They didn't even have publishing for any of any of their hits right the, so one their of hits were written by isaac hayes and david porter right and so sam moore uh tells me a story of uh w what are some of their biggest hits i just r forget the names hold of, on i'm know, coming hold on i'm coming or yeah, things yeah, like that yeah. and and so tells me the story of but the Blues Brothers cover version is like in the top ten. Right. So he tells me after SNL, he went back. He's in a, an apartment in Harlem shooting heroin while listening to the cover song oh, of Blues Brothers of their work. I mean, so oh, that boy. he managed to get clean and then recover and then tour and get back. And a lot of it had to do with a, a, a girlfriend who became his manager. So it was kind of ultimately a heartening story. Um, but I think he might have been um, uh, con conservative uh, anyway, because uh, there was uh, some festivities regarding, I, I think one of the one of the Bush uh, campaigns had a big R&B festival because mm -hmm. uh, the, one of these campaign strategists, his name I'm forgetting, uh, was very big into R&B and he sort of promoted it. So they, they had some of that stuff. Um, uh, anyway, but that, that, that was, but it was really, it was fascinating to talk to these musicians. So uh, I won't get into the details on the others, but I got to meet in person, Betty Wright, who had done the cleanup woman oh, and yeah. created 
her own new genre mm -hmm. of kind of female anger empowerment that she yep. would self-release these albums and would fill auditoriums with. I mean, mm -hmm. she was really successful creating these long-form thematic albums about women being dissed and women empowerment and stuff. And yep. then uh, interviewed also, I I interviewed Hank Ballard, you know, wow. and he sold the twist. He sold the twist because he needed the money for 500 bucks. He oh, wrote geez. the twist. Yeah, I know. I, you know? Know. I know. I mean, so. It was, and, and his version of it was much better. Yeah. No well, comparison. sure. Well, Hank Ballard was pretty amazing guy, and uh, I was very, I was very excited to. I got to see him perform too. It was really, it was really exciting that they, you know, that to see. So I was so, and then uh, so uh, as part of that, I got to interview very briefly Bonnie Raitt for this article. Oh boy! And it was real. I called her. This is so great a story to me. It is. I love Bonnie Raitt. And in Washington, D.C., where I live, even when she didn't have a record deal, she was beloved. She could fill out the Warner Theory. She could mm -hmm. fill out Meriwether. She could fill out any of the big arenas because she had such a loyal fan base, as, as deservedly so. So I'm calling her. She's taking a break from the studio. And I say, uh, oh, but she explains how she wanted to give back something to all the artists who inspired her by the royalties. And I said, mm -hmm. I, uh, what are you working on now? I hope you're playing some slide on it because you're so great at it. So, oh, yeah, the slide. I think you'll like this album. I think it's going to be really good. That album was Nick of Time. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> got her all these Grammys and, like, kind of revived her. So, so he... So this is karma at work. She's helping older R&B artists get their royalties, get more money, and yeah. she records Nick of Time, and she goes into the stratosphere with that album. It yeah, was so I, I, she, she helped uh, Arthur Crudup get money for uh, uh, the you know Elvis's song, Mister uh, not Mystery Train. What, what, I forget what it was. Ain't, uh, don't be oh all shook up or no, don't be no cool. that's Otis, that's Otis Blackwell. Oh okay, uh, but but. She's one of the great, and that she, she's such, a, she's like one of these people who's kind of, well, she's had some personal problems of her own in terms of her public persona, her her talent and her generosity and her activism. You got to remember that she was very active and a leader of no nukes and all this stuff. So she's been so active on key issues, and she's personally generous, and she helps. She does these systemic changes in the music industry by helping these artists get get royalties. Yeah. So, I mean, she's kind of an impeccable character in yeah, my really. my really. book. That's great. Um, uh, you know, remember I, I I was saying that we're gonna have w uh, the first uh, um, face to face uh, episode of this podcast. Will I'm recording on the 16th. It'll, it'll run on the on the 19th of August. With Reggie Houston, and I did oh. two. I did two episodes of this podcast with Reggie. Now, Reggie's one of those guys if, who he, he starts talking, he just doesn't stop. You know, <laughs> uh, and the two were were on the uh, the death of Fats Domino because he was in Fats Domino's band playing uh, baritone sax for twenty years, and on the death of Dave Bartholomew. And, wow! And and, and uh, you know, and of course I had to ask you know when, when we were talking about Fats. So who is who is who was the real king of rock and roll, all right? Because is it was it Fats? Was it Elvis? Was it, who was it? Right? And he just shook his head and said, "No, 
It was Dave Bartholomew. Mm. Because uh, a lot of the things that uh, Fats get credit for, gets credit for, were actually stuff done by Dave Bartholomew, including uh, not having Fats play in segregated concerts, which is something that Fats Domino always gets credit for. But according to Reggie, who was in the band and was, you know, was the probably the real leader, uh, was um, that was Dave Bartholomew. Did Bartholomew create the piano sound that Fats later used? I know he no, wrote the songs. No, I think he. Well, that I don't. I don't know for sure. But you know, the thing was, you know, Dave Bartholomew took this very raw uh, young talent, right, in New Orleans, and and built the band around him. What was he responsible for? Fats playing triples? I don't know. But but uh, the star, But he sort of helped create it. But it. it you know, you uh, you were the one. We went down to New Orleans uh, after Katrina, and it was. Uh, mm-hmm. I wrote this. It's on Huffington Post, and people like the story about going to that bar, watching all these oh, people God, yeah. come back, yeah. and watching the joy and the emotion coming from these people to be back together with each other, yeah. and and them swinging out. Great New Orleans R and B. It was such. And Reggie was, was in the su- band. And Reggie was in the band, and he uh, went down the middle of the crowd and all sorts of stuff playing. Mm-hmm. And it was so much. Mm-hmm. It was so much emotion. You and, lost your mind. I went out of my mind. You I wrote totally a very, lost your mind. <laughs> well, I thought it was. <laughs> I don't I blame you. I mean, but <laughs> I was. I lost my mind over the greatest of the music, but I was also emotionally overwhelmed to see a community getting some hope. Yeah. Again, and oh, learning yeah. about this. Do you remember the name of that bar where they gave away oh. the steaks? No, it was during the height of the flood. He gave away steaks and food that was available yeah. to cold and things like that. Uh, you know, I can't remember during the general gen, during the general failure of Katrina. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, they, when we were there, there were still like you know uh, signs uh, designating on on spray painted on houses about whether uh, they found bodies in there or what the, what the oh the, yeah the whole thing was yeah it was yeah, kind of like yeah. uh I, you remember when we were we were sitting there and uh, uh in front of the big stage and uh irma thomas came on and she's then it started to rain and she's right. saying she's saying it's raining wow <laughs> <laughs> well i mean tom is as people who listen to this sh- sh- your podcast or read you is one of the big fans and very knowledgeable fans and chroniclers of New Orleans music and, uh, you know, as knowledgeable as anyone I know. So I, I have a, you want to hear another uh, interview, sure. interview sure. story? Well, this doesn't involve, uh, I think you can find it at Miami New Times under Art Levine. Uh, um, and basically it was a profile. I did a profile. I'm interested in magic and psychic phenomena. And what actually, the, historically, magicians are very hostile to psychic phenomena because they know tricks and so they know how to duplicate it, and they just can't stand it. They're two different worlds, and they're oh, and most of like the amazing Randy and Houdini both expose fakery. And I profiled Amazing Randy, which was. A lot of fun. He's now passed away, but Amazing Randy most famously exposed Yuri Geller uh, for yeah. being a fakery on spoon bending. 
and he had he said he, he was invited no, on the Johnny. You're kidding! It was fake. <laughs> yeah, but here's the point: he could replicate this trick, oh. <laughs> and then what he did is. Uh, uh, when Yuri Geller was going to be coming on on again, but I'll get to the uh, other interview thing, but briefly about Amazing Randy, he, uh, Carson and his producer invited Amazing Randy to set up the stage and the cameras so he couldn't pull any tricks, so he couldn't pull any sleight of hand, uh-huh. and he failed. In other words, magician Randy's on the side of the stage. He'd set it up so there was any sleight of hand would be visible. And he set it up, and Geller failed on national TV when there were only three networks. And everybody in the country is watching Johnny Carson. Couldn't do it. <laughs> and But the guy I interviewed was a guy who was a pretty damn good musician, who would, a magician, I mean. And he would have, like, he would do tricks, and then you'd find a card in your pocket. I mean, he was an yeah, amazing yeah, magician. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but he was also a psychic. So as part of the story, I had a kind of psychic reading, and then he did a treatment on me where he kind of opened up my chakras. That's the belief system of mystics that there's kind of corresponding roughly to organs. There's different energy vortexes in your body. Okay, yes. so that's a mystic belief system. So he opened up my chakras, and then like a day or two later, I had an interview with a young uh, political aide to the mayor about some issue related to, uh, you know, a political controversy or zoning issue. And I'm, I'm being a reporter and then I'm having I'm, – I'm getting all these sexual thoughts about, about, <laughs> about males and, you know, like sexual thoughts are coming my way that are kind of homosexually tinged. And I've never had that. I'm a heterosexual. And I'm just wondering – What's going on? And then I even went to a psychiatrist and said, I've never had this before and I, I don't really – I don't think I'm turning gay. I don't know what's happening. And then I realized, oh, he opened up my chakras to such a point <laughs> that I could receive this guy's thought patterns oh, who, was, who was opposite me, a young, good-looking, extremely well-coiffed, young Cuban-American man who I'm interviewing. And I real, I ran back to the psychic magician. I said, please close up my chakras. Because <laughs> I didn't want to be receptive to, to, to unwanted sexual thoughts. Whatever. That's, that's so that great. may be politically incorrect. Boy, it sure uh, did. <laughs> and then... And then as Seinfeld once said, not that there's anything wrong with it, you know. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you know, I had a thing almost was wasn't it wasn't that spectacular like that, but <clears throat> when you're on interviews and things happen, I was I was in Eugene, uh, Oregon, um in, in interviewing a guitar player. And and um I I was you know, he was playing and at a gig and my crew was shooting him, and I just his his manager was over on the other side of the room, so I went over to say hello, and introduced myself. And uh, I said, hi there, I'm I'm uh, I'm the producer of the story. I'm, my name's Tom D'Antoni, and he looked at me without a shred, a drop, not a dollop of irony, and said, "That French." <laughs> so all of a sudden, I was able to be a scary Italian. Wow! I just turned it on. I turned it on. It's, it's, it was somewhere, something we were within, within me. Right. And, and I said, no, it's Italian. And he looked at me like I was about to kill him. It was so funny. 
It was just hilarious. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, you, you know, you're one of these educated Italian Americans who is not really embarrassed by mob culture, but fascinated <laughs> by it and so on. Well, I know, but I don't get to do that. You understand? First of all, I'm, do that. You're not. A, I, I don't even get to be rude. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, as a Jewish person, I, that's that's the thing. Why I've that I have been noted for being a little aggressive and rude in restaurants, and friends have criticized for me that. And one of the things that's really uh, one of my reasons I'm 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 empathetic to African Americans and racism in general is whenever a minority group does something that's kind of screwed up, they attribute it to the minority group. Yes. <laughs> but when I do something, it's correctly attributed to me in most cases, unless someone's an anti-Semite, you know. Uh, and so I'm the one that's – they go, Arch being a little aggressive here with the waiter or being a little rude. It's not – I don't feel it's like – they don't go, boy, all those all those heaps act like that all the time. You know yeah, but what that's I'm what saying? they're thinking. No, I don't think so. Not oh, oh, definitely. I, they definitely are, Arch. Uh, maybe they are. Oh, I know they are. Okay. Well, maybe they are. We'll, 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 at this point, uh, uh, thought reading in our current incarnation as humans doesn't really. If your chakras were open, you could tell that. (laughs) Right. If my chakras are open. Oh my God. I'm especially glad my chakras aren't open now because I, I could find out which of my dearest friends are actually who, who feel like? But the other fine thing I find is that because I'm willing to go to the management if something is badly prepared or it's late, they designate me to do it because they don't want to take it on. Because oh, they know you will. Right, I will. Well, right. I've I've held back and I've. Uh, when was that? Uh, there's <laughs> been times where I've held back, uh, but I have been I have been criticized for it. So in. So in thinking about if there's an afterlife and I get judged, and I do believe in an afterlife, and I've written humorously about it. I wrote about it uh, for the Washington Monthly years ago, and it's archived at unz.com. It's called God is My Chiropractor. Uh, But I'm also the author of the book Mental Health Inc., available now at Amazon. One of the things that I I realized that if if there's an afterlife and I go there, I'll go – well, look at all the good work I did as an investigative reporter exposing harm. And they go, <laughs> and I mentioned this to a friend, and then, but, you know, I was rude to some waiters. They go, forget it. You're not getting in. No, in not, only that, not only that, you'll come back as a waiter. I'll come back as a waiter. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, right, all right. Listen, uh, this has been great. Uh, it's, it's, I'm always, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we've been both been busy. haven't had a talk for a little while, but... Uh, I'm always glad to hear from you. You're always a welcome guest on this podcast, as you know. Thank you so and, much, Tom. Uh, and as we like to close this every week, we go, we say, that's entertainment. Great. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>